You are listening to The Political Performance with Casey Bertaki on WNTH 88.1 or The Political Performance, the podcast. Hello and welcome back to The Political Performance hosted by Casey Bertaki on WNTH 88.1. This is a weekly debate and discussion show covering multiple different national and global political issues. My name is Casey Bertaki and I'm the host of this show. Each week, I'll have one or two guests on my show to discuss or debate a certain topic. If you're interested in coming on the show, please email me at thepoliticalperformance at gmail.com. While the political performance itself is not a politically biased show, our guests will be sharing their opinions. There are multiple sides to every issue, and the political performance does not endorse or side with any particular views. With that being said, let's get to the show. Today's topic is October 7th's vice presidential debate between Senator Kamala Harris and Vice President Mike Pence. Uh, we have joining us today Rem Johanknecht, a student at Walter Payton High School in Chicago and a member of the Illinois Democrats and his Scholastic Model UN team. He is also the founder of Connecting Chicago, a Chicago nonprofit that provides free virtual tutoring for over 300 students. Rem, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Casey. I'm so glad to be on today. We're very excited to have you. Um, Okay, so I'm going to be asking you uh, a series of questions about the debate, and you're welcome to share your opinion and thoughts on it. Sounds Um, good. All right. So generally, how do you think that the vice presidential debate went? So after the first presidential debate happened, I had a pretty bad taste in my mouth, and I was pretty concerned. In the span of just a couple days and several, like, a very quickly changing news cycle. I wasn't exactly sure what we were going to be thrown into, um, especially given like the COVID scare at the White House. Um, But overall, I think the main takeaways were that instead of interrupting as much, the concern was lying and untruthfulness. Um, I was really surprised by how easily Mike Pence was able to bend the truth to his advantage using like commonly commonly used phrases like you can have your own opinion but not your own truth um he really like turned the table and put Kamala on the defense um so that was what I kind of took away mainly if you had to declare a winner from the debate who would you say won so I'm going to start by saying who I don't think won first of all I don't think the American people won because I'm not sure that anyone learned much that they didn't already know going into it The second person that I don't think won was Mike Pence and the Trump campaign, because if anything, I think they've just continued to alienate more and more voters instead of convincing the people that they need to convince, particularly those in the suburbs. Um, But that that may just be reflective of their style. And I think Kamala Harris, she did a really good job. And I think that especially in the commentary and the the impact that her words had on the audience, she didn't have to she did a really good job balancing some of the different aspects of her identity, particularly balancing people's perceptions of what it means to be a woman candidate, as well as an African-American and Asian-American. I think that she did a really outstanding job um, presenting her case for the Biden campaign and sticking up to Mike Pence. I've heard a lot of people actually say that the American people lost with both this debate and the first one. So that seems to be a very common sentiment among um, people who have watched the debate, especially in this area. Yeah, for sure. Um, How do you think it went compared to the presidential debate? So like I said, I think one of the big differences was that, you know, 
Pence was not directly attacking Kamala while she was speaking. Instead, I think I saw his strategy more in how he would respond to questions. You know, the moderator, she would begin by asking Pence a question and Pence would immediately go to add whatever finishing thoughts he had on whatever Kamala had just said. And he used that to consistently get the final word in, even if it wasn't called for. And then what was really unfortunate is that once his two minutes had elapsed and we were ready to turn the next page or pass off the mic to Kamala, then he would finally start answering the question he was asked. And that really made everyone take a pause and think, okay, well, do I let him keep speaking because he's answering the questions we need to know? Or is he just playing the system? And I think we saw more of the latter. Um, I think as far as Kamala did, she started off really strong, just like Biden did. Um, and she may have faded a little bit, but overall a very consistent performance, just like Biden did in the presidential debate. All right. Um, so how do you think Senator Harris did overall? Do you think she helped garner votes for Biden? I think that she did. One of the things that stuck out most to me um, was her appeals to moderates and I think also demonstrating the changes that we've seen in campaign strategies since the, the 2020 Democratic primaries. Um, we've definitely seen that instead of appealing to the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, they're really reaching out to moderate and independent voters around the country. Um, and I think that Kamala did a really good job at that. One thing I know you know, initially, I don't know if we're thinking this still, but one of the main concerns about Biden was his energy. And I think that whether it's Kamala on the debate stage or Kamala's impersonation on SNL, she's definitely breathing a lot of energy into this election. Yeah, the Maya Rudolph impersonations are pretty funny. They're amazing. Um, I'm going to ask you the same question for Pence. Do you think that he helps get votes for Trump? So I'm not sure. I, I think like, at least for myself, I, I didn't see many opportunities that Pence took that would have done that. I think he had a lot of opportunities, for example, on the issue of white supremacy, where Biden or where Trump rather specifically avoided the topic of calling out white supremacy and racist organizations in the country. And he really did a poor job correcting that record. And I think that this was seen not just on that area, but on many facets of the debate. I, I'm not really sure that they're convincing anyone, but more just continuing to spread lies that mislead voters around the country. All right. What did you think of Pence's response or lack of response to Susan Page's COVID-19 questions? You know, I think that it's pretty consistent with what this White House's response has been to COVID-19, to deflect and avoid and only present what's easiest to show, to give an optimistic lens. Um, but I think that we really just saw a lot of professional politics right there in avoiding the question that seems, honestly, I think came off as out of tune and off key for a lot of viewers at home, because this is something, whether it's economically or health health related, it's impacting every American. So I think that their avoidance did not play well at home. Why do you think that Senator Harris dodged the question about court packing? Do you think that she would reasonably expand the Supreme Court in office? So I think court packing among with many other policies is one of those issues where it's hard to please everyone. So they're kind of making the right decision and just staying more quiet about it. I think that 
you know, court packing, it appeals to a lot of Democrats because they're frustrated with the conservative majority on the court. And I think it's it, it's outrageous to a lot of Republicans because they see this as a one-sided game that Trump can do um, as he gets, he is able to form a, a solidified um, conservative majority, but that Democrats, you know, because they weren't elected to the right office at the right time, that they don't have the ability to. But I think that, you know, it's one of those sensitive topics because we talk a lot about keeping the Supreme Court apolitical and nonpartisan. And it's one of those things where it's a pretty major leap to acknowledge, okay, this is a very partisan organization. And as we see in the new Supreme Court justice hearings um, and in other areas, you know, like, I think there's sometimes a disconnect between outcome-based analysis of the Supreme Court rather than the reasoning-based analysis, um, understanding the thinking process of Supreme Court justices. So this would be a pretty large step and jump to thinking about the outcome and really just like justifying justifying the outcomes over the means that Supreme Court justices take in making their decisions. Why do you think that Pence was so reluctant to talk about Roe v. Wade, an issue that he's been very vocal about before? So I think that it's one of those issues, you know, there's so many demographics at play right now um, that Pence, he's, he, he knows that once it gets talked about and brought up, it's something that's hard for them to, to kind of walk back because so many Americans are very passionate about it. And on another note, um, I just learned this recently, but Regeneron, the, the, the experimental therapeutic that Trump took while receiving treatment for COVID-19, Regeneron, it's derived from stem cells, which come from aborted fetuses. So in that, there's kind of an inherent conflict of interest in their strategy, because on one hand, you have the president who's a vocal opponent to abortion, and so are much of his evangelical base and Republican supporters. But on the other hand, you have the president who has also benefited from the exact same thing that he is railing against. So it's kind of an, a differently a, a different approach that they need to take that's more nuanced than I think they're usually comfortable with. If this really goes down this route, like are you really going to check that every single aborted fetus that Regeneron comes from was aborted because of health reasons? Like that's not realistic. There have been a lot of jokes and memes, uh, especially on Twitter, about the fly that landed on Mike Pence's head during the debate. While these are certainly very funny, do you think that they detract from the actual material presented in the debate? So I want to start by just saying, what material could you possibly be referring to? While, while Pence was spewing lies, I think that this fly did a public service in detracting from some of the messaging that he was getting out. And I think that on a side note, one of the most brilliant things that Biden's campaign did is that by the end of the debate, they had already had a, a an outrageously popular item selling um, a fly swatter to swat away the lies that were coming out of his mouth. So I think that this was a really wonderful blessing in disguise that we saw. Do you think that Senator Harris was the best choice for Biden's vice presidential candidate? Why or why not? And if not, who would you have chosen instead? So I think that the vice president, vice presidential candidate has to serve a variety of purposes. And right now, if we look at some of Biden's weaknesses, 
I wouldn't say that they're necessarily geographical because I'm not sure that let's say like having Gretchen Whitmer as his running mate would have helped him with Michigan. Um, but instead, I think Kamala Harris does a really good job complementing and aiding some of his weaknesses. First of all, Biden being a white man that he is, Kamala helps to make up for that in appealing to the diversity of the Democratic Party and also just allowing a lot of Democratic voters and independent voters to see themselves in their ticket. Um, I also think that like this choice, while we may not have known this a few months ago, but one of the biggest tests, I think, is the scandals that come out of a candidate. And really, we haven't seen many scandals that have swayed away voters to Biden as a result of Kamala Harris. So I think overall, she was the right pick. So just kind of a follow up for that. During the primary debates, we saw a lot of clashing between Senator Harris and former Vice President Biden because of Biden's uh, segregationist policies in the past. Do you think that given those, uh, like those differences, people, like voters may think that she's a strange choice? I don't think so, because I think in a lot of ways, the rate at which we consume news right now is insane, that it's pretty far, at least in my mind, to even recollect the 2020 Democratic primary races, that a lot of that rhetoric is no longer relevant, or it's no longer as pressing when we're dealing with issues like an economic crisis of this magnitude. We're dealing with ongoing issues of um, civil unrest due to racism that we're seeing when we're seeing the economic crisis that we're, that Americans all over the country are feeling. I think that those are kind of those, that debate that they were having, it's kind of consistent with the fact that, you know, in the primaries, we, we disagree with each other to push the party's agenda in the right way. Um, that challenges us all to think in the best, in the best possible option especially when it comes to dealing with racial politics and focusing the most on equality and equity. But when it comes to the general election, the strategy changes because you need to no longer, you, you know, you recognize that some of the voters, you have their support. So now their lens is really focused on convincing as many people to show up to the polls and also as many people to get in their camp. All right. Um... According to a recent poll by the Washington Post and ABC News, Biden has a 55% chance of winning and Trump has a 43% chance. How accurate do you think this will be? I think that it's going to be more accurate this year than it has been in 2016 or 2012. I, recent, I actually regularly check a function on the New York Times app that essentially compares the current polling values to those in basically comparing them to the margin of error that we saw with the polling data and the actual election outcome in 2016 and 2012. So that let's say right now, if Biden has a five point lead in actuality, that might translate to like a four point lead in 2016. So I think that right now they are pretty accurate. And the reason why I'm so optimistic is because there's so much passion right now for politics. What we saw in 2016 was a lot of apathy people were really disgusted with both of the candidates, or at least were not excited by either of them. But I think right now we see people so excited, either for Trump or for Biden, that voter turnout is gonna be incredibly high. Not just because of that, but also because of the unemployment. Politics is so personal right now that people see their own trajectories in their candidates. All right, so going off of that, 
could you see a scenario where Biden wins the popular vote with numbers similar to this poll and Trump still wins the Electoral College? I'm not sure. And I'm going to refer all of your listeners to a website called 270 to Win. Um, I think it's a great way to kind of play around with that and just see what the latest polling data is showing with how the Electoral College will turn out. And I think that right now I'm pretty confident that Biden would be able to win both of them. However, as we already know from hard lessons, the Electoral College does definitely favor Republicans. So that wouldn't be completely unfathomable either. As a former Pete Buttigieg supporter, how closely do you feel that your political beliefs and values are represented in Joe Biden? So going back to the primary, some of the main reasons why I supported Pete were because of his optimism, his vision, his ability to communicate his vision, and also just his appeals to unity um, and to independent and Republican voters. And I think that these are all areas that Biden has done excellently in. I've been very impressed by how well he's been able to keep his coalition of voters unified, stretching all the way from supporters of the Lincoln Project who are former Republicans or still Republicans that support Biden, all the way to former supporters of Warren and Bernie Sanders. Um, So I feel like Biden is doing a phenomenal job in that. And I also think that, you know, he's been very forthcoming with all of his policy proposals that may have been a little unclear previously except with the notable exceptions of like the Supreme Court. Um, But overall, I've been really impressed with him as our nominee. All right. Do you think that the Biden-Harris ticket is appealing to undecided or centrist voters? I do. And I want to qualify that by saying that right now, I think that there's very few undecided voters. Really, those those are voters that are either former Trump supporters or... There are people that have been misinformed by the Trump campaign about what Biden's policies are. And I think we see this in two major areas. First, going back to the vice presidential debate, we see how many times Kamala Harris took to the camera, looked the American people right in the eye and corrected falsehoods that uh, Mike Pence had been saying, whether when it came to manufacturing, mining and especially fracking, saying that, you know, Joe Biden is not going to take away your fracking jobs. Um, and this is something that, you know, would have would not have been considered in the primary debates, but that is critical to correct the perceptions of American voters who see Trump as morally reprehensible, but also see him as their only option because they think that Biden is going to take away their livelihoods and their jobs. And that's that's the issue that I think they're trying to correct right now. The other thing is maximizing state, maximizing voter turnout in a couple areas. First, particularly the voter turnout of African-Americans in urban areas in the Rust Belt and throughout the Middle West, because the middle, the Midwest, not Middle West. Um, I think it's really important that they're trying to drive this home because they see how tight the polling numbers are, where this is no longer a battle of convincing voters, but it's a battle of getting your voters out to the polls, getting them to register to vote through mail, voting early, all of those things. The other thing is maximizing voter turnout of Hispanic Americans in Southern Florida. And I think you see this through not only um, Joe Biden's campaign strategy hosting frequent events in Southern Florida, but also you see former candidates like Mike Bloomberg committing millions of dollars towards targeted ads in South Florida, specifically 
you know, minority voters that are there. All right. Um, how do you feel about third party voters in the 2020 elections? Would you ever consider voting third party in this election or in another one? So speaking to the state of American politics right now, I think that we're seeing a news cycle that exists in a vacuum. I don't know if I've even heard the names of the candidates, of the Green and Libertarian parties. So I don't think that there are very many um, third party voters, at least this election cycle, because the rhetoric is so much so that a vote for anyone other than Biden or a vote for no one and staying at home is a vote for Donald Trump. That's the very common messaging that we're seeing. Um, and I think that that's kind of going to stay consistent throughout this November. Um, would I ever consider voting for a third party? Absolutely. Because I think that one of the major weaknesses of the American pol political system is the bipolarity of there's only red or blue. There's only right or wrong. And I think that we see this in our news. We see this in our social media. We see this from our candidates messaging. Um, so I think that getting multiple voices out and capturing the perspectives of, you know, rural liberals and urban conservatives, all these different niche groups, I think is really important. So I really hope that we welcome more voices into the larger political scape. Well, the Electoral College in particular makes it extremely difficult um, to support a candidate that's not uh, of the Republican or Democratic Party. For sure. And, you know, I can talk a little bit about like different alternatives to the Electoral College. I think that it's one of the most unfortunate things right now if we look back into our country's origins, because really the main reason why we had the Electoral College was for the three-fifths compromise, where African-Americans and slaves were counted as three-fifths of a white property-only male, owning male, when it came to congressional seat apportionment and electoral college votes. So this system is incredibly outdated and not fit for the times. But then at the same time, you know, I'm not sure what the clear solution is, because one, the electoral college benefits Republicans and with that, I think it would be challenging passing a constitutional amendment. And the other reason is because there's not enough unity in the country to see a vision that's an alternative. So, you know, if we look to Europe, we see the, op the, the possibility of a parliamentary system. But the, alter the bad thing about that is that there's not as many checks and balances. And that, you know, a majority coalition or a majority party really is the freedom and the ability to pass through whatever laws, which could be very divisive in a country like the US. Then there's like, if we were to apportion electoral college votes by congressional districts, um, but that has its own downsides because as you see in the House of Representatives, you know, that's very, it can be very vulnerable to gerrymandering, which is done by both Democrats and Republicans. Then I recently learned about this thing called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, which essentially is a pledge that states make to apportion all of their all of their um, state electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote, which would only take effect once a minimum of 270 um, electoral votes were counted for. So it requires a much larger representation of American states. Um, but I think that you know, this is also weak to the the conflict of interest that Republicans have since they benefit from the current system. 
And then the last thing is proportional apportionment to the popular vote, which would be one of the most drastic changes because of the obvious need to change and amend the constitution. Um, but this would most likely be what most people think of when we say, um, you know, eliminating the, the, the winner takes all practice where, you know, we see that when you, whether you win by one or 10 million votes in a state, you take all of the, you take all of the electoral college votes. All right. Could you go into a little more depth on the parliamentary system? Yeah. So basically my understanding of the way that that works is where you elect your parliamentary representative who serves in whatever the national parliament is. You could call that parliament. You could call it Congress. It's really similar to what the U.S. House of Representatives is. And then from there, mm -hmm. you create a coalition or whoever the majority is elects a prime minister. So in this case, you know, you would have Nancy Pelosi as our prime minister, um, which right. would not okay. be the worst thing in the world. Um, and that's kind of what you see in countries like England, although that's slightly different than the monarchy or countries like Germany. All right. So how do you think Trump's decision to pull out of a second presidential debate because he didn't want to participate in a virtual debate influences his chances? I think that it doesn't really change much. If we learned anything from the first presidential debate, it was that Biden's performance helped his polling values. So in this case, Trump was really just defending himself from a situation that he was vulnerable in because it's easier to mute someone on a Zoom call than on a podium in front of a live audience. So I think that he was he was at greater risk in that situation. So he doesn't really exactly gain or lose anything in this, which is better than alternative for his strategy, at least in losing support if he were to participate. Although there is a clear, you know, this is obviously not good for spreading information to voters and informing their decisions. Right. So how do you think not having a second debate will influence the results of the election? I don't think that it's going to change much. I think that the first presidential election was critical in firing up a lot of Biden supporters and demonstrating that he is a competent um, Democratic. Yeah, the sorry, debate. what did I say? Oh, yeah. So oh, the okay. first presidential debate, um, we definitely saw that as a result of Biden's performance, he proved to a lot of American voters that he is competent. He's not lost his mental stride, at least to the extent that Trump said, and that, you know, he's a fighter. He's not, he's not being mopped. The floor isn't being mopped um, like we had kind of anticipated or been led to anticipate. However, with that said, I think that with early voting right now, so many votes have been cast by independents and by Democrats that really the only thing that could change this, the landscape of the election would be a major, a major news leak or development um, or some sort of controversy at, at the 23rd hour um, right before the election. But even that, because of the large proportion of early voters, um, would not have the same effect as it would in other election years. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Rem, for joining us. And thank you all for listening. 
whether it's through Spotify, Anchor, or WNTH 88.1. Remember, there's multiple sides to every issue, and it's always interesting to talk to people with different perspectives. I'm Casey Ritahi. Stay political. Awesome. Thank you. This- All right. Yeah. Yeah, Thank this you is for super coming. exciting, so thanks for having me. Sure, I will let you Do you have an estimate of when up. it'll air? I try to get okay, them out cool. every Okay, cool. Just send me a text then. Thanks so much.